Let us hear these words from Paul's letter to the churches at Philippi. He, Paul is talking here about his hope in Christianity, his hope for the resurrection, and the ways of living the Christian life. And he writes with this paraphrase from Eugene Peterson's The Message, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Siblings, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on, on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, siblings, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Christ Jesus, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our humble, lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us, let us say, thanks be to God. And let us pray. God of heaven, we pray each week that your will be done on earth as it is in your heavenly realm. And so as we hear these words from Paul, we ask that they might live in us and that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. About 15 years ago or so, I heard my father-in-law lament that he feared for his grandchildren growing up in this world and the legacy we were leaving to them. The world seemed to him to be coming crazier and crazier. Though fretful, it was a kind and caring thing to say, born out of much love, and I'm pretty sure he's one of millions of parents and grandparents who've had this thought throughout the generations. It struck me as odd, however, to think that the world is any crazier now than at any other time. You see, he was born in 1936, after all, when the wheels were really starting to come off of the experiment known as Western Civilization. He lived out his childhood through the deadliest global war to date, one in which the nations of Europe fell in alarming rapid succession to a small, belligerent little empire hell-bent on revenge, eventually annihilating six million Jewish people, all held under the sway of a pathetic little ranting demagogue. Democracies, as Plato warned, are fragile systems, vulnerable to becoming dictatorships. 
something we should keep ever present in our minds on this American Independence Day. Now, I get it that today humanity faces a much graver existential threat. We only need to look at the current weather forecasts around our country and around the globe to see what scientists have been warning about for years and the incremental encroachment of the mess we've made of this earthly garden that God has entrusted to our care. Without some swift and drastic measures, humanity will not fare well over the next decades and centuries, but you can rest assured that nature and God will come out all right. For ultimately, that's who's in charge. And if we mere mortals have any doubt about that, entrenched as we are in our resistance to learning the lesson, well, we are starting to see the writing on the global chalkboard. So this may not be the sermon you wanted to sign up for today on American Independence Day, but I pray that it's the truth. You see, when my father-in-law expressed concern for his grandchildren's future and well-being, our nation had invaded Iraq, launching yet another expensive, misguided war in a part of the world where we sought both revenge and financial gain under the pretense of exporting our democratic ideals. Lots of good patriotic citizens wondered, what the hell is going on? Why are our leaders taking us to war on such flimsy grounds? While too many others went along under the cheaply patriotic slogans like, these colors don't run and don't tread on me. Eventually, we saw how wrongheaded and obscenely expensive this war was. And now as we see what a mess Iraq and Afghanistan are, we have to wonder, what were we really doing and to what end? I believe we have always been a nation of contrast, espousing one thing and doing another. And as we reflect this summer on how we're rooted in our past and reaching into our future, I apply the same framework as we think about our country on this Independence Day. In declaring our independence from the proud, thuggish British Empire, Thomas Jefferson beautifully wrote that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Beautiful, lofty sentiments, worthy of inspiring the best in all of us and encouraging us in our attempts at self-government. And, at the same time, the same hand that wrote those words caressed the thighs of Sally Hemings, an enslaved woman of color whom he owned. What about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Mr. Jefferson? What about hers? What about the legacy for her grandchildren? And thus, we have the central contradiction about the way our nation has been structured. Rich, educated, presumably heterosexual white men of means espousing seemingly lofty ideals, while the less publicized, more hidden reality belies a greater inequality that persists among us. It's written right there in the Constitution. Our nation was intended for a citizenry of land-owning men, not for women or enslaved people. And as we ventured westward across this beautiful land, seeking, yes, life, liberty, and pursuing happiness, and also impassioned by capitalist lust and a sense of manifest destiny, our forebears in this grand national experiment obliterated the people already living on it, and used the unpaid labor of people forcibly brought into the land to help pay for it. It's not a pretty picture. In fact, it's a fairly 
obscene, disgusting picture. But it is, unfortunately, the truth. And the more we ignore the truth, the more we are doomed to our own demise. It seems to me that you can trace the civil rights, the feminists, the Me Too, the LGBTQ+, and Black Lives Matter movements right back to Sally Hemings. What about our inalienable rights, Mr. Jefferson? What about our grandchildren? And certainly, fueled by such activism, we've tried to correct those basic structural problems with constitutional amendment after amendment and lawsuit after lawsuit. And thanks to people who really are committed to the equal human rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the common good for all of us, we've made strides. Great strides. Heroic strides. We like to think of ourselves as the oldest democracy on the planet. But students of democracy outside this country will point out we're really one of the youngest. Because it wasn't until the 1960s that our federal government passed the Voting Rights Act, giving any real teeth to ensuring the right to vote of adults of all colors. And as our Supreme Court showed us this week in a 6-3 to three ruling, even that right, the right to vote, is susceptible to backlash. As Abraham Lincoln put it 158 years ago, we are now testing whether this nation, or any nation so conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal, can long endure. There have always been those who would like to keep our country closer to the ideals of how it was structured to be a place for rich, hetero, white men and their families to live on the fat of the land, than those who would open us up to new possibilities, new ways of imagining citizenship. Many of us like to think about citizenship as we turn to the Grey Lady in New York Harbor, our Statue of Liberty, a gift from the people of France in recognition of our country's ideals, and the words that a Jewish-American poet of immigrant stock offered to raise money for the statue's pedestal so the lady would have a place to stand. Emma Lazarus wrote, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And there are many of us who have embraced this diversity of people coming to our shores, this widening of the promises of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we enjoy seeing a tapestry of humanity that makes up our people, people from all over the world. Here in Brookline, our local high school proudly boasts 69 nationalities and 44 languages. What a beautiful testament to the diverse image of God and the promise of Pentecost. It is easy, when you pick up your favorite news source, to despair for the future of our nation. But it is essential, particularly as people of faith, that we hope as well. And that we work every day of our lives in some way toward those hopes. I believe the United States of America will not last forever. But its best ideals speak to deeper human longings, to deeper human needs, to God-inspired values, and I believe that Jefferson was in line with the Creator when he wrote of inalienable rights. 
which is why I wanted to point us this morning to the third chapter in Paul's letter to the churches at Philippi. As he's writing, he admits right up front that he is imperfect, that he does not always get it. He has an ability to miss the mark, and yet he strains ever forward toward the goal of heavenly perfection. I believe that's a stance that we Christians who have a particularly progressive take on the gospel, that's the stance and the, the framework we should take as we look at our country. Because our ultimate loyalty is not to the United States of America, to its laws or its government. Sure, we are bound to them by the ways that humanity all over the world organizes itself, and we are bound to them in the ways that we accept the privileges of this citizenship. But they are not our ultimate loyalty. They are not our ultimate citizenship. As Paul points out, for too many, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame because their mind is too set on earthly things. And you and I, Paul says, are to have our sights set on heavenly things, like the love of neighbor, care for the most vulnerable, love and care for all of God's children. So I urge you, if you find that the news about the current state of affairs, about the fate of our nation, brings you anxiety, uncertainty, causes you to, to despair for yourself and for your progeny, then I invite you to remember again, in prayer and reflection, in daily walks and talks, to remember from whence you came and to whence you shall return, to remember the territory of your human citizenship, which is the moral landscape, landscape, the ethical imperatives of God. And I invite you to remember something else that Paul wrote in that letter to the Philippians, that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, he writes, or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This, my friends, is our true calling. This is our ultimate citizenship. And through this kind of lens, everything else comes into sharper focus.